This week on Policy, Guns and Money, Dr Robert Glasser speaks to Professor Frank Giotso about the energy transformation from fossil fuels to renewables. It's a very exciting thing that we see unfolding in front of our eyes, actually, including right here in Australia. Dr Jake Wallace and Albert Zhang discuss a CCP information operation against the BBC. A significant response that we observed rippling across online environments, targeting the BBC. And Dr Tegan Westendorf speaks to Tony McCormack about Australia's fuel security and resilience. Worse than that is the fact that Australia is 100% reliant on imported jet fuel. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. As significant global shifts from fossil fuels to renewables continues, the economic impacts of the advancing global energy industry are beginning to take shape. Dr Robert Glasser is joined by climate expert Frank Giotso, Professor of Environmental Economics and Climate Change Economics at ANU, where he also directs the Centre for Climate and Energy Policy. They discuss the commercial market forces behind green energy and what China's dominance in the sector really means. Well, I'm here with uh, Frank Giotso. Frank, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. And you, Robert, very much so. So today, Frank, uh, as you heard in the introduction, is a an international expert on climate and energy and also an expert on China and China's energy policy in the climate sphere in particular. So I thought that's what we could talk about today. We could just spend a few minutes talking about, first of all, energy, the great energy transformation that's underway now from fossil fuels to renewables, and then talk a bit about China's fundamental role in this and how that's evolving. So what is the great energy transformation that's underway, Frank? It's a very exciting thing that we see unfolding in front of our eyes, actually, including right here in Australia. So we know that uh, for the world to get climate change in check, we need to decarbonize. We need to squeeze the greenhouse gas emissions out of economic activity. We, we want the world economy, we want national economies to keep growing, uh, keep growing for the most part, means, you know, more energy use in particular in developing and industrializing countries, but that cannot go hand in hand with increased carbon dioxide emissions. In fact, needs to go hand in hand with carbon dioxide emissions towards zero. And the main ways of doing that are, first of all, a completely carbon-free electricity supply. So that means renewables and in some places nuclear power to replace coal as well as replacing gas and oil. And then we're going to electrify everything. So everywhere where we use fossil fuels to directly drive engines and cars and trucks and ships in industry, heat for building, all of that needs to be replaced by electricity. And we're beginning to see that happen. Uh, And very excitingly, that's beginning to be a commercial proposition. It's market forces that are now driving that transition in many places of the world where renewables now, new build renewables, are actually the cheapest source of energy. Is that the case in Australia as well now? Uh, How far away are we from that? at that tipping point, or have we already reached it in the transition from coal, for example? Yeah, in Australia, we've reached uh, that tipping point in terms of the cost of new built energy supply infrastructure. So if you now want to provide more energy um, by some newly built facility, then solar and wind will be by far your cheapest options in Australia. And that is reflected in the mix of energy sector investment. 
So in Australia, almost all new energy supply investment right now is in wind and solar as well as in storage. And you throw in a bit of ex uh, gas in the mix, but that's largely driven by export demand. Now, the other comparison is, of course, with, with existing fossil fuel-based infrastructure. The capital was built and paid for decades ago. These are still, for the largest part, competitive with newly built renewables. So it does raise a question about uh, Australia's ambition in the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. So we've made a commitment to 26 to 28% reduction in greenhouse gases. And the Prime Minister has said that we will achieve it at a canter. Are we going to achieve it at much more than a canter, given what, that we've already reached this tipping point that you've described? How hard, how, mm. how much of a struggle is it to meet our Paris obligations? So the existing Australian 2030 emissions target is easy to achieve and was always easy to achieve. It's defined in a way so that we don't actually need to be at 26% below at 2030. We can be above that because really we're counting what the area under the curve between 2020 and 2030. And the target is defined in terms of a base year of 2005, when emissions from land use change were very high in Australia. They've since dropped enormously. In fact, they dropped uh, in the years before the negotiation of the Paris Agreement. And so 26 to 28% for Australia is really easy to achieve. Yes, we will in all likelihood meet that. Yes, we will in all likelihood exceed that. And there obviously lies a, an opportunity um, for a Australian government to to improve on that target um, and, and to actually set out a, a stronger ambition. When we had a coffee earlier, I, I asked you about the, the pace of this transition from fossil fuels to renewables and whether the fact that the price is dropping so quickly of renewable, the price of renewables is dropping so quickly that in fact we don't need government policy now, that the market itself will accelerate this transition to the point that we prevent warming of greater than two degrees. Yeah, so certainly um, a lot of the transition that we see unfold now is market driven, it's driven by commercial decisions and that's really the most um, sustainable way in a way uh, to, to achieve that of course. Government policy has done a lot to get us to this point. So we would not have seen the dramatic reductions in the costs uh, of wind turbines and in particular of solar PV cells if it had not been for massive government policy um, that, that drove, the, drove the demand for these technologies in previous years. Now, looking forward, much of that transition can happen in many places of the world without dedicated policy, but what will be needed is a supportive framework. Right? We will need governments pointing the way and saying our long-term ambition is net zero because that is what sets the goalposts and what sets the frame of reference for the big corporates. Right? So we now see the boardrooms of the world, by and large, making decisions that are broadly in line with a net zero by the middle of the century ambition. And that's ultimately a reflection of what governments agreed in Paris. 2015. So we need that high-level guidance and we will need, the way things look, the way technology costs are at the moment, we will need government policy in particular parts of the economy where it's not obvious or evident um, that the low emissions alternative will also be the low-cost alternative. So we need government policy in some areas, in some places perhaps as well, including China. Maybe we can move on to China. They've just uh, presented their 
the draft outline of their next five-year plan. So a couple of questions about that. First, how important is China in our efforts to reduce greenhouse gases and prevent dangerous climate change? Secondly, what can you tell us about the new five-year plan? It's been criticized for being less ambitious or, or not delivering on Xi's Chinese commitment uh, to achieve neutral or carbon neutrality by 2060. So maybe those two questions. Yeah, so China is is frankly pivotal for the global effort on climate change. It is, um, you know, soon to be the largest economy. It has for a while been the single largest global emitter of greenhouse gases. And so what happens in China matters tremendously for that reason. But it also matters tremendously because many, many countries are looking to China for emulation of an industrialization and economic growth trajectory, right? And so to the extent that China can demonstrate that it can bring, you know, the remainder of its population to materially high levels uh, of high living standards without increasing greenhouse gas emissions. And in fact, while squeezing greenhouse gas emissions out of the system, then, you know, countries will be lining up to emulate this and, and, and do this at home, right? And so it is absolutely pivotal. Now, there has been, yeah, this, this, this sort of disappointment, I would say, in terms of uh, what we know, uh, in terms of headline commitments and a 14th uh, five-year plan. However, you know, I mean, that takes place in the context of China having made absolutely enormous strides in previous years in getting away from a really carbon-intensive model of development, right? So the years roughly from 2000 to 2012 is when we saw double-digit growth in carbon dioxide emissions in China in many of these years, right? When really we had these enormously high economic growth rates that are just coupled to emissions growth rates almost as high. And since about 2013-14, we've really seen a decoupling of Chinese economic growth from emissions growth. So there were a couple of years in the last five or six years when Chinese national greenhouse gas emissions actually fell. Right? And that is Phenomenal. really quite unique. Yeah. And it is not something that anyone would have reasonably expected could happen before 2020, back in 2010, for example, right? So if you look, I've been involved in, in projections and scenario analysis for China. China's emissions back in the year 2008, connected to the Garno review back then, you know, it was not really possible to anticipate a scenario where Chinese greenhouse gas emissions would drop off and tail off in the way that they have. Now, very briefly, 14th five-year plan commitments are roughly in line with the trajectory that China has painted towards 2030 in line with its Paris obligations. Um, and I guess what we can say about that is it will be very easy for China to do much better uh, than its Paris goal and thereby also do much better than what's in the 14th five-year plan. And we've got uh, China committing to a more ambitious nationally determined contribution, so we'll see when that's announced and what will be included in that. Let me finally just bring together the discussion about the market forces and the discussion about China to ask you a question that it's really unfair to ask you. But I've tried to disentangle Chinese decision-making and to ask myself how much of their action on in this sphere is simply about the market and the, oper the economic opportunity how much is it actually an appreciation of the hazards that climate change presents for China uh, and Chinese interests? You speak with a lot of Chinese and uh, policymakers. Do you have any intuitive, if not uh, definitive, 
response to that? These things are, of course, hard to quantify. But, you know, um, an important starting point in all of this is that it's safe to assume that all of China's climate change action is thoroughly self-interest motivated, right? So, you know, there may be some lofty rhetoric at the international stage about contributing to, you know, or making a decisive contribution to the global effort, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, this is very largely national self-interest, just like it is for most other nation states, of course. Now, you're asking the question of the balance within those national objectives, right? So from my interaction with Chinese colleagues, it's clear that there is a heightened awareness in China of the negative impacts from climate change on the Chinese economy and society. So that's to do with sea level rise, that's to do with freshwater availability in the north of China, etc., etc. And so China is actually large enough, including as a, as a share of global emissions, so that its own actions on climate change will actually materially affect climate change outcomes for China. And so that's certainly a driving force. If I had to wager whether this was the main influence on, on Chinese efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions compared to the other things, the things that are to do with technology leadership, uh, the things to do with establishing markets for Chinese technology companies, um, then I would say the interest in technology leadership and the economic benefits of decarbonization are the bigger factor, right? And so China is very clearly positioning to be a world leader, if not the world leader in some of these zero carbon technologies. So it's already the largest producer by a long shot of wind turbines and solar panels. It's positioning to take a similar role for electric cars, for transmission technology in the grid, for storage technology, and the list goes on. In fact, we're all counting on it being in our urgent national interest, self-interest to address this problem. Frank, thanks very much for spending time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. Following the release of the impactful report, Trigger Warning, the CCP's coordinated information effort to discredit the BBC, Dr. Jacob Wallace and Albert Zhang joined the podcast to talk about their findings and how they identified new CCP information operation tactics, including leveraging Western and alternative news media. Albert, we produced a report cleverly entitled Trigger Warning, the CCP's coordinated information effort to discredit the BBC. Now, this emerged from what we observed in terms of a really strong response from Chinese diplomats and state media around BBC reporting initially on Xinjiang, although uh, there was a particular report that I think raised the ire of the uh, the party state in, in particular. But there has been some legacy of um, concern expressed by the, the, the Chinese government around BBC reporting, particularly when it focuses in on human rights abuses in the Xinjiang region. Mm. Uh, but the impetus for this particular piece of work was the BBC's report into systematic um, sexual assault, reports of s- alleged reports of systematic sexual assault in the um, 
camps in Xinjiang, which was then followed up by Ofcom's decision to withdraw the broadcast license of CGTN in the UK. And this combination of events really produced uh, a significant response that we observed rippling across online environments, targeting the BBC uh, and attempting to discredit the BBC as a neutral investigative journalism outfit. And there were a number of features that we thought were particularly worth exploring here. We would expect to see the coordination across perhaps Chinese diplomats and state media. We we understand the symbiotic relationship and the flow of content that we see between the two. That's a, a persistent feature of um, propaganda that we see emerging from the party state. But there were there were some interesting kind of novel features to this particular response, weren't there, that we explored. What could you I- identify a couple of those for us? That's right. In this activity, we definitely saw recycling of old tactics but some of the new activity that we saw was sort of the leveraging of um, western influences so some of the content they published sort of aligned with the narratives that the ccp diplomats and state media were pushing as well and so we saw some amplification of these otherwise not mainstream or unknown outlets really other tactics that we highlighted in this report were the identification of domestic grievances of the BBC in the in, um, that were sort of pre-existing that the state media as well as diplomats then highlighted to sort of discredit the BBC further by taking advantage of those criticisms that were already popular among sort of Western audiences already. Other interesting factors that we sort of uh, identified were this mobilization of pro-CCP or pro-CCP narrative-aligned Twitter users. So we saw in January and February there were about 500 accounts that were tweeting about the COVID-19 um, Fort Detrick conspiracy theory, which uh, states, states that the true origins of the coronavirus actually originated in a Maryland um, US biological lab. And so this was uh, sort of spurred on by the Chinese foreign spokesperson in January. And then we saw uh, users on Twitter get on board and called for an inquiry into the US lab after there was pressure to sort of investigate uh, Wuhan. So of these accounts, about 110 of them um, then went on to criticize the BBC following the initial sort of surge in activity by CCP diplomats and state officials. So we saw this temporal alignment of activity from the official government talking points down to activity on social media, especially on Western social media where these platforms are banned in China themselves. And it's it's interesting for us to explore those kinds of effects, because I think that gives us a sense of um, impact. We can see that the coordinated efforts from uh, Chinese diplomats and state media are are driving effects. We can we can identify networks where their narratives are penetrating, and we can we can to some extent measure. Uh, effects because that's always a, a complicated issue when we look at disinformation or influence operations there's a lot of debate around the extent to which it is actually producing outcomes for the for the actor that is driving the information operation but the other thing that we saw which is a, an 
interesting emerging feature of propaganda from the Chinese state. Is this convergence with fringe alternative Western news, and I'm doing air quotes here, listeners, uh, news outlets like the Grey Zone, which push a very, um, how could we describe it, anti-Western imperialism kind of agenda. Uh, and interestingly, we've, we're seeing Chinese diplomats and, and MFA spokespeople retweeting and um, using sources like the Grey Zone as, um, as, as an evidence base for uh, kind of official positions from, from the Chinese state. And that's really interesting because when we take all of these uh, novel features together, they suggest that the propaganda apparatus within the party state is learning. It's becoming increasingly adept at understanding how to target audiences in the West. It's learning that the approaches that the CCP uses to manipulate the information environment in a firewalled, contained Chinese domestic context uh, are not exactly the same uh, when we're working when they're working on an open internet, and they need to find ways to drive influence. And some of the ways they're doing that is by using Western influencers, by um, drawing on the audiences that these fringe media outlets will provide. And all of these um, offer bridges into the political discourse in the West. Uh, so it's really interesting to see the Chinese government leveraging approaches that we have seen elsewhere, for example, in Russian disinformation, the use of these specific ecosystems of alternative news media. So it's an interesting evolution. One of the things that um, I think it's uh, important to highlight is just how persistent this is likely to be because Xinjiang is an ongoing topic of concern for the Chinese government, isn't it? Mm, definitely. Um, and just to add to the sort of new emerging tactics we've observed, we're regularly seeing um, the Chinese sort of propaganda apparatus take advantage of the domestic content produced on Chinese social media to then disseminate into Western social media. So we, in this report, we saw um, a post on Weibo, which criticized the BBC for not using the same footage for one story about life in Wuhan. And it showed a screenshot for shot comparison between the BBC English version, which um, was greyed out, whereas the BBC Chinese version had a more colorful sort of appearance to the video itself. And, a, a Twitter user on um, who claimed to be from the production team for the BBC Chinese team said that the original footage was actually was actually filmed in a C log mode. So that means that it the sort of raw footage which hasn't been color corrected and the BBC English service had used that video video footage for whatever reason. Um, we've also seen this similarly back in um, last year, in the last year, with the Dalajen post, where he posted some artwork of an Australian soldier with a knife to a throat of a, of an Afghani child. And so it's interesting to see that instead of producing its own content, the CCP diplomats and state media are using content produced domestically to then reach out to maybe diaspora communities around um, the world to influence those communities um, and recognizing that th that content is likely to have more of an impact and influence those communities than content that's directly produced by the state media. That's right. I think they understand that when they repurpose content, they're mm -hmm. going to drive resonance amongst audiences that are kind of predisposed to mm -hmm. the circulation of that kind of material. So that's pretty effective for them. I think that this, this will continue because 
What is also effective is walking this fine line between diplomacy and disinformation and using approaches like repurposing or recycling organic content is really helpful because it keeps you just on the right side of content moderation policies on on western social media platforms it's not overt disinformation but it it serves a similar purpose it's certainly propaganda but all of these approaches that the Chinese government is increasingly deploying in combination are really powerful in, in walking that fine line in the gray zone uh, in terms of how they shape the information environment in ways that are conducive to their uh, strategic goals. So, uh, Albert, I think we've seen some real consistency here in terms of the trajectory there's been a, a consistent evolution and we know that there are particular topics around which this is likely to continue and Xinjiang is one of those topics because it's so important for the Chinese Communist Party. They know that they need to put pressure on inter international organizations that attempt to push for transparency around what's happening in Xinjiang and they know that this is a, the kind of issue that could have opportunity costs for the Chinese state in terms of its international relations so I think we're going to see this persist we'll be tracking events online as they emerge with a drive for fuel storage investment in the Northern Territory Dr Tegan Westendorf speaks with Tony McCormick on Australia's fuel security and resilience Thanks for joining me today, Tony. I understand that there have been some developments with fuel storage in the Northern Territory, and I was wondering if you can tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, thanks, Tegan. To give you a quick overview, some new facilities have been constructed, some have been contracted, and there's some proposals for some more facilities as well. The biggest beneficiaries are the military bases up there, in particular RAF bases Darwin and Tyndall, and the naval base at HMAS Coonawarra. But significantly, a great proportion of this is being driven by the US Force Posture Initiative. Hmm. And when you say driven, is that funded or...? Well, it's, um, it's funded and it's also part of the US strategic initiative to increase their fuel stock holdings across the Pacific. They've got large stock holdings in Hawaii, in Korea, in Japan, in Singapore, and now they're increasing their fuel stock holdings in Australia. Could you explain a little more about the fuel storage of the US in Australia? Well, if you look um, for a start at RAF Darwin, there two tanks have been built there with a capacity of 8 million litres each, which is quite a lot of fuel. But more importantly, a request for information came out of the US uh, just before Christmas for the construction, receipt, storage and issue facility to hold around 300 million litres of fuel. And that's going to be split between a fuel called JP5, which is realistically a jet fuel that's used on um, ships and commercial jet fuel. And importantly, this facility will have a throughput of around about 64 million litres per year. So if you are filling up your car, that will be filling up your car over 64 million times to get that throughput of fuel. Yeah, wow. Or to look at it another way, that's probably around about 2,000 fuel loads for uh, a 737. Amazing. So is it just about US fuel storage or there, are there opportunities and implications for Australia more broadly? Now, Australia is also putting some fuel supplies in there. At HMAS Coonawarra, they're increasing their fuel storage of diesel by 6 million litres, and that'll be used for fueling naval vessels. And one of the key things about the, the fuel facilities they're putting in at Coonawarra is piping direct down to the existing wharves, and it'll make it much faster and efficient to refuel the patrol boats there. At RAF Tyndall, the Air Force has increased the fuel storage capacity there. 
to a capacity of 6 million litres of aviation fuel. And then as part of the Australian government's diesel storage program, there's an initiative to increase the national diesel fuel storage in Australia by an additional 780 million litres. So there's potential for the Northern Territory to be part of that program there as well and create a fuel storage facility in the North. And where would these facilities be constructed? Well, that's one of the big questions. Because when you look at the North, there's a lot of land up there, but uh, you also need to put in the infrastructure and it needs to have a port. So the Northern Territory Land Development Corporation has identified a pass of land at uh, Darwin Port where the US storage facility and the proposed new diesel fuel storage facility could be constructed. And do you think that's an appropriate location? Well, if you're looking at it from a purely a financial and cost perspective, it does make sense. But from a risk and resilience perspective, it doesn't. See, the current VOPAC facility is the Northern Territory's largest fuel storage facility, and that's located at the Darwin port at the moment. But if you put in any more fuel storage facilities next to the VOPAC facility, you'll have them using the same roads, the same rails, the same port, and the same pipe that uh, pipes the fuel from ships into the facility. So you have multiple single points of failure that could disrupt the entire fuel supply to the north. A better, but unfortunately a more expensive option will be to locate new facilities at a different place, geographically separate from the current port. This would create redundancy and reduce a lot of that risk. So overall, it's good news. It's a boost for the north. It's a boost for the strategic resilience in the north, assists in defence's ability to conduct sustains operations from the north, and it gives Australia more fuel storage. That's a good thing. But there still remains a problem. And the greater problem is the production, the refining of fuel in Australia. Australia's got four refineries at the moment. Two of those are scheduled to close uh, in the not too distant future. Worse than that is the fact that Australia is 100% reliant on imported jet fuel. Despite the creation of all this extra storage facilities, what we really need to do is fix that fuel supply chain and fix that refining ability in Australia so that we can produce our own fuel and be more self-reliant. So overall, what's the significant takeaway of the current fuel status in Australia? Well, the significance for Australia generally is it's the good and the bad. The good is we're increasing our fuel storage capacity across the nation. It's being done by us. It's being done with the assistance of the US as well, um, certainly to, to help them out. The bad is that we've got four refineries in Australia. Two of those are scheduled to close very, very soon. And even worse, we don't produce any jet fuel in Australia. So we have to import 100% of that. And that most of that comes from Singapore or South Korea. So we're dependent on the rest of the world for our fuel. We need to fix that logistic supply chain so mm -hmm. that we can have a true national resilience and uh, fuel security. Absolutely. That sounds like a real state of precarity for Australia. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those problems that we need to fix. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.